If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Hi there, I'm Dave, Content Director for the History Extra podcast. I hope you don't mind this little interruption. We've welcomed a lot more listeners to our podcast over the past few months, and we're delighted and really grateful to have you on board. Thing is, we'd love it if a few more of you headed over to our website, historyextra.com, to check out some of our content there. We have thousands of features covering a wide variety of historical topics on the site, from ancient Rome, through medieval Europe, and right up to the 20th century. We've just released some exclusive podcasts onto the site too. These are recordings of lectures given at our 2019 History Weekends, and they include talks from Dan Jones on the Crusades, Yanina Ramirez on Medieval Wonder Women, Nicola Tallis on Margaret Beaufort, and Peter Caddick Adams on D-Day. Just head over to historyextra.com forward slash exclusive hyphen podcasts to have a listen. I hope you enjoy them, and I hope you carry on listening to this podcast too. Thanks again. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's interview is with John Nicholl, a historian, author and a former RAF navigator, who's just published a new book called Lancaster, The Forging of a Very British Legend. It explores the history of the iconic World War II bomber aircraft and tells the stories of the men who flew in them, based in part on interviews with veterans. John spoke to our editor, Rob Attar. I wonder if we could start with the origins of the Lancaster bomber. When was it first built and why was it needed? Well, at the start of the, of the Second World War, the Air Force's offensive capability and indeed its defensive capability with its fighters was quite limited and it soon became clear that uh, the very early bombers, the Wellingtons, the Hamdens, things like that, were just not going to be able to cut the mustard in the war with Germany Um, and the Royal Air Force needed bigger, better bombers Uh, more powerful bombers in general terms, bombers that could carry much greater weapon loads to the heart of Germany. Now, when you start to talk about carrying weapon loads to the heart of Germany, what you're really talking about is weapons of war to kill people and to destroy things. And when you're talking about the Lancaster bomber, you have to keep that in mind. You know, I mean, it's it's some people might find it an uncomfortable thing to talk about, but it was designed to destroy things and kill people. And the early bombers weren't doing that enough, weren't doing what the most senior politicians, the most senior military leaders wanted, which was to take the war to the heart of Germany. And with the Lancaster bomber, that's what they were able to do. You know, the the, the massive weapons load, the massive payload, 
the range, the the incredible crew disposition that allowed this huge bomber to... to it's almost like a, a production line of getting these bombers, not, not to produce the bombers, but a production line of to get the firepower into the heart of Germany. And that's what the Lancaster was needed for. It was a... War is a great facilitator of military development, and the Lancaster bomber was that. It was a weapon that was needed to take the war to the heart of Germany. And how much of a logistical challenge was it to build the Lancasters in the quantities that were needed? Well, it's a huge logistical challenge. I mean, if you you just, I don't know, look at a modern car production line now uh, with all of its automation, all of its computer technology. Look at the, the floor space that's something like, even something small, perhaps like Aston Martin. Look at the, the mass production facilities to get out a few, what is it, thousand cars a year. And then imagine trying to do that by hand, by individual rivet. There's no machine this is individual rivets. It's individual men and women on huge, massive production facilities to build the, you know, the, the near seven and a half thousand Lancasters that were built. So as a, a weapon, it required mass, mass uh, labour to do it. But you then have to put that into perspective of the whole of the war. We needed the ships to be built. We needed the tanks to be built. We needed the shells to be built. Never mind what the Lancaster needed in terms of its uh, weapon load of its own weapons. Just think of the whole all-encompassing nature of that Second World War, the fighters that were being built. The production facilities of war were driven by the necessity to defend the country. When was the first raid involving Lancasters and how successful was it? Well, the Lancaster eventually came online in uh, 1941 and the first raid was early 1942. Uh, and it, the first time it was really used in anger was um, in very early 42. Uh, and it was 12 Lancasters sent to, uh, to hit a, a production facility in Germany. And uh, it really, in terms of uh, losses, was not successful. Um, I think eight out of the 12 Lancasters were destroyed or uh, written off uh, unusable. It was a daylight raid. It was difficult conditions. The defences were incredible. The, the aircraft ran into German fighters uh, as they headed in uh, across the French coast. And so in terms of a success story in military terms, they actually attacked the production facilities and that worked, but the losses involved were huge. But as a, dare I say, as a flag-waving exercise for the Lancaster, uh, it, it garnered huge publicity. Um, John Nettleton, who led one of the formations, uh, was awarded one of the first Bomber Command Victoria Crosses. And the, today we talk about spin and public relations, and that was going on in the Second World War. It was, it was happening. And Nettleton was taken around. He went to the Lancaster production facilities, the factories, and he met some of the people producing the Lancasters. And so whilst the losses were great and um, the, the raid on Augsburg militarily, you could argue about exactly how successful it was as a, the first op for the Lancaster in terms of showing what the Lancaster could do. It was a success, but the losses were astonishing. So why then did the Lancaster become the preeminent British bomber plane? Uh, numbers, just 7,400 built, and it went into service with obviously so many squadrons. People talk about it in the same breath as the Spitfire. 
in many ways, we talk about it so much because we now know so much about it. It's a bit of a catch-22 situation. But any of the Bomber Command veterans that I know who flew the Halifax, for instance, who was there, who were there at the heart of the conflict as well, will tell you that their contribution was as important. And you can't really in these simple terms, divide down individual contributions. The simple fact was that the Lancaster was produced in massive numbers and it was involved in some of the keynote raids, some of the most notorious raids, some of the most important raids. Uh, and because of that, we think more about the Lancaster now than we do about the Halifax, the Mosquito. People rarely talk about some of the other Bomber Command aircraft. The Lancaster's built up its reputation because of the numbers that it was used and the, and the operations it went on. What do you see as the most significant raids that the Lancaster took part in? People always ask that question, actually, Rob, and I don't think that you can answer it. Uh, it's like asking what your favourite child is. And look at the Dambusters raid, one of the raid that almost... Most people will have heard of the dam. Was the Dambusters raid one of the key raids of the war? Well, in its ter in terms of what it achieved, certainly not. In the terms of what it showed, we could do. Possibly it was a key raid in the terms of the way that it was idolised in the aftermath and the, the righteous heroism of the crews was acknowledged. It was important, but you can't look at either one operation one raid or one part of anything um, of the war. Um, Bomber Harris, Air Chief Marshal Sir Arthur Harris, the chief of bomber commander uh, at that time, called uh, the Lancaster's shining sword and one of the most crucial elements of winning the Second World War. Well, could you say the Lancaster was more important than the Arctic convoys? Could you say that the Lancaster was more important than the tens of thousands of troops that stormed the beaches on D-Day? You can't do that. I don't think you can do that. But what you can say is its contribution overall was crucial. So to answer your question in a much shorter way, I couldn't pick out one specific operation because taking the war to the heart of Germany, which is what Bomber Command did as a whole from the first day of the war to the last day, that was the crucial part. And what aircraft they used and what means they used, you could argue individually about different ops, but the contribution to the overall war effort was absolutely key. Now, your book actually really, I suppose the main focus is not so much on the planes, but on the people who flew them. Yeah. What kind of men were they? Is there any way to sum them up or are they really just a, a complete cross-section? No, you can't sum them up because they were for everything from, you know, uh, one of the, um, the, the men that starts the book, Ron Needle, who was a Lancaster rear gunner. He was a butcher's boy. He delivered the sausage rations. Um, you know, they, you had people that worked in factories, you had public school boys, you had draftsmen, you had cooks and chefs and bottle washers. It was everything. And the delight for me of, uh, of reading these accounts is the way that they came together, the way that they came together as a crew from totally different backgrounds. And especially if you think about what we might refer to as the class structure in 1940 to 1945, which is still there in many parts, they came from every background and they crewed up in a totally arbitrary way in a, a mess hall or in a hangar or in a room. They chose by the cut of their jib, by the look of the other chap, who they were going to live with, fight with and possibly die with. And there was no rhyme or reason and, and uh, fate and luck and skill didn't come into who was going to live or die during that war. 
skill did come into it, that'd be unfair, but the chance of who was going to live and who was going to die never, death didn't care if you were a butcher's boy or a public school boy. And am I right to say that not all of the crews of Lancasters were actually British, that some were from the Empire and other places? From all over the Empire. They came from across the world, from New Zealand and Australia and Canada. Uh, one of the chapters in the book is called, I've called it Pilots of the Caribbean, because they, they came from all over. And those people of colour who came from the Caribbean and that part of the world had made an incredible contribution. And so officers and airmen uh, and RAF police and clerks, some of them in Bomber Command were at the heart of the war. And one of the guys that I talk about in the book was shot down and he became a prisoner of war in Stalaglove Three, the home of the famous Great Escape. And he was one of the, the first black prisoners of war. And the Germans could barely, barely believe this. And he ended up on the on the front page of one of the German Nazi party produced papers. And it called him um, an airman of indeterminate race because they didn't know how to cope with this. They didn't know what to think about this. And so the war effort across Bomber Command and across Fighter Command and the whole of the Royal Air Force was supplied from every corner of the globe. It was a, an incredible effort. And what kind of relationships were forged by the, the crews of these planes? The personal relationships between the crew were astonishing. They quite literally trained together, lived together, fought together, and in some cases died together. Uh, the bond between them was absolutely incredible. And what is interesting, because, and it is almost a, a, a curious or a foolish thing to say, the only people that you can interview are those who survived. Now, that probably sounds quite a, a curious thing to say, but all of the people that I've spoken to in the many years I've been speaking to them all talked about their love for their crew, how they work together as a team. And I think that almost certainly had something to do with their survival, because you never really hear much about... I hated my crew. I never got on with them. We never socialised together. There's a couple of occasions in the book where people, uh, a couple of members of their crew are, are actually uh, dismissed simply because they're not getting on. Now, in actual fact, some of those who were dismissed then went on to have incredible careers and won awards with other crews. But that bond of being together in that aluminium tube, in the heart of that flak, you have to have total trust in all of your friends around you if you're going to survive. What did the people you spoke to, what did they think about the Lancasters and the things they liked and disliked about flying in them? There are very few negatives. Um, they loved it. The pilots loved it as a flying machine. They talked about, you know, the way it flew like a fighter, especially some of the, the more powerful versions. They loved it the way that it handled. I spoke to, as part of the research for the book, some of the guys from the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight who fly our Lancaster. And they are they, they have flown some of the Royal Air Force's most modern aircraft, and they love flying the Lancaster because it's it's a, it's a pilot's aeroplane. You are connected via the control column to the control surfaces of the aeroplane. You can feel it; it talks to you when it flies. Um, and so they, they they loved all the the men who flew during the war loved it. It was a hardy aircraft; it could take severe punishment. And a number of the stories in the book, people talk about if it wasn't for the Lancaster, they wouldn't be alive today uh, because of it, its hardy nature, the punishment that it could take. It had some downsides. I don't know if you've ever been in a Lancaster, but it is, it, it's in incredibly narrow. You think of this giant aircraft, um, you know, kind of um, wingspan of 100 feet, 20 feet tall. You think of it as a big aircraft, but it's not inside. It's like being in, a, in an aluminium tube with all of the racks of equipment. When you walk from 
you know, even on the ground in daylight, in beautiful weather, when you walk from the, the crew entrance door at the back and turn right and walk up, you hit your shoulders on the on the equipment stations. You, you knock your head with all the bits of stuff that's hanging down. And then there are a series of where the, the wings are connected uh, and the main spar runs through. There are a series of almost letterboxes where I'm not a small fellow. Um, and trying to get through, I'm hazarding a guess, it's maybe, maybe three feet uh, and I've got a picture of the book of one of the guys at the the with the Lancaster Just Jane at East Kirkby at the the uh, Lincolnshire Aviation Memorial Heritage Centre, and you have to squeeze through. It's like if you've ever been caving and tried to get through a letterbox in a cave. It's like trying to do that now. Doing that on a sunny day in Lincolnshire in daylight while the Lancaster's on the ground is tricky. Can you imagine doing that in the middle of the flak? when the aircraft is in a spin or when the aircraft is in flames. If, you, if you've been on a waltzer, every, you know, if you've been on a fairground waltzer, you might experience maybe one and a half or two G pushing you into the back of the seat in the waltzer. If you're in a Lancaster in a flat spin, you could be under six, seven, eight, nine G and you could be stuck on the roof or stuck on the floor or stuck against the bulkhead. Can you imagine trying to get off your waltzer under one and a half or two G? Then compare that to trying to get out of a Lancaster under 7 or 8G when it's on fire, when there's holes in it, when there's your mates are dead at the other end of the Lancaster. Um, and so going to war in one was an astonishing experience. There's no doubt about that. And as people probably are aware, Bomber Command is one of the most perilous uh, places to be in the Second World War. I mean, could you give us a sense of, of the dangers of being on a bombing raid in Lancaster? First of all, I think that the statistics tell a greater story than trying to describe, and I will do, trying to describe an individual's experience. So if you were in Bomber Command, uh, about in general terms, about 125,000 people served in Bomber Command. Of the 7,377 Lancasters that were built, so this is just Lancasters, over half were lost in bombing ops or in training accidents. So half of the Lancasters were lost, over half. Of the 125,000 people who served, just over 55,000 were killed. So that meant that you had basically about a 42% chance of, uh, of being killed in Bomber Command, never mind anything else. Then another uh, 10,000, I think, were shot down and became prisoners of war. And another 8,500 were injured. So that meant if you served in Bomber Command, you had about a 40% survival rate of getting through the war unscathed. Can you imagine that now? Can you imagine the prime minister in the heart of either uh, the Falklands War or Iraq or Afghanistan saying, uh, we have lost 60% of a fighting force, of a regiment, of a naval battle group, uh, of a squadron. We've lost 60%. That's astonishing. And on an individual level, if you look at some of the, the raids that Bomber Command undertook. So in 1944, the raid on Nuremberg. We remember the, the heroism of the men of the Battle of Britain. Rightly, and we celebrate that. And I think, if I remember the numbers correctly, 544 men were killed during the Battle of Britain. 544, an astonishing number, over the, what is it, four-month period of the Battle of Britain. On one night in Bomber Command, on one raid, to Nuremberg, more men died on one night than died in the whole of the Battle of Britain. So more men from Bomber Command in one night 
than the whole of from fighter command over the whole of the Battle of Britain. That tells its own story. That tells you the real dangers involved. And, you know, there's one story that I uh, really kind of, that really hooks onto that in the book of a crew and they're, they're attacking Berlin in 1943 as part of the Battle of Berlin. Um, and uh, they're actually part of the Pathfinder uh, force and they're marking the target. So they've got green flares amongst their bomb load that they're going to drop uh, to mark the various targets over Berlin. And the pilot is describing how he is he's on the bomb run and the flak's coming up around them and suddenly there's a massive explosion and everything in the aircraft stops working so he loses all intercom all contact with his crew and he basically says the aircraft turns green what's happened is some flak has hit the bomb bay and the green marker flares have exploded and so he said the aircraft is green i'm just flying now a green haze and he knows that the aircraft's finished so all he can do as a pilot is keep control of the aircraft as much as he can in the hope that his crew can bail out and he says we've practiced this on the ground they can all bail out in about 30 to 40 seconds and so i have to count to 30 seconds and he says i know i'm going to die i know that i have to sacrifice my life so that my crew can get out and he starts to count this is happening in a flash of a second so he starts counting one Two, and the flames, the green flames are coming towards him through the back of the aircraft and up. Five, six. The flames are licking up between his uh, control column and his instrument panel. He gets to 17, 18, and suddenly he says, the next thing that he knew, the aircraft has gone. He is sitting above Berlin with his hands forward, there's no control column there anymore. There's no aircraft there anymore. There's no seat. He is in a sitting position over Berlin, falling down towards the flak and the flames. What well, his aircraft has simply exploded. All of his crew are immediately killed by the virtue of the forming of the blast. He's actually been thrown out of the aircraft and luckily he's got his parachute on and he's sitting over Berlin. And he manages to pull his parachute. And then because he's at 20,000 feet, he's got quite a long time, maybe is it seven or eight minutes, to float down into the heart of Berlin where he's just bombed. And again, it is those sort of personal stories which really bring home the incredible courage and the incredible sacrifice. And he said, I mean, he sadly died last year, but I spoke to him quite a bit about his experiences. And he said, on the way down, all I could think about was my crew. He said, I knew they were dead because the aircraft had exploded. He said, I knew they'd be dead. And he said, I thought about them every night since. So that was, what, 75 years on. I think about them every night. What, what I could have done better. Could I have saved their lives? Of course he couldn't. But that bond between the crew is there all of the time. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So if you had a mental or physical breakdown because of the dangers you'd faced and the things you'd seen, you weren't helped in most cases. You were told you were a coward in the same way that in the First World War, men were put against posts and shot. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What kind of reception would somebody like him get when he landed in Germany? I mean, how were these prisoners treated when the Germans knew what kind of raids they'd been doing? It depended. I think, to be fair, on most occasions, they were looked after. They had a rough time, but they were looked after, handed up through the system and ended up in prisoner of war camps. There are a number of occasions, again, I've got a couple in the book, where crews are simply murdered. They are literally hung from lampposts, hung in barns, shot by enraged German civilians. But, you know, bearing in mind the numbers that were shot down, the numbers are probably relatively small, though clearly we don't really know. We can only know if somebody could come back to tell the story. And there are three or four occasions where people came back and said, I saw X or Y murdered. So we know that some were murdered. And that sounds horrific, and it is. Uh, and there are some truly brutal stories of uh, one guy who's uh, he's dragged off with his crew to a barn, and you can see there are nooses hanging from one of the beams in the barn. Uh, and they're gonna, he knows that they're going to kill him. So he manages to break free from the crowd. He actually gets away, but the rest of his crew are shot in the churchyard next to the barn. There's actually a, an account that comes out afterwards when the people, the local German people go to church the next day, they're walking around the bodies, which are still in the, in the churchyard. He survives, Tom survives to tell the story, and he manages to relate that. Uh, and it's a horrific story, but I think we shouldn't forget that it also happened here. There are contemporary accounts of uh, German aircrew being shot down and being lynched in, I think, in London and possibly Bristol. I think I read an account. Again, small numbers. But you can imagine if you've seen your family killed, if you can see if you've seen your home blasted apart, if you've seen your children die amidst rubble, then you're going to be enraged, enraged. And in war, sometimes when that happens, there's some truly horrific things occur. You've given us a, a really powerful sense of the dangers facing these these Lancaster crews. How did that affect their lives in Britain when they weren't flying missions? For the most part, and it was quite difficult for the men of Bomber Command, they tried to get on with their lives, especially some of them who had girlfriends or who married. You would fly off your mission in Berlin. You know, sometimes you might get back. There's a, a, a story in the book where um, the guys uh, are heading uh, over the target and a Lancaster above them drops its weapons, drops its bombs, and the bombs go through one of the wings of their Lancaster and through the rear turret. And so the rear, the, the rear gunner is simply killed outright. So they come back, they have to report all of this, they have to almost clear the remains of him out of the, the rear turret. And then they go off back to home to their wives and to their girlfriends for dinner. And if you can imagine that, that's quite tough. And it was tough for them. And they had some of them had quite a tough time, but they were a hardy lot. And as all of them said, what else could we do? You, you couldn't just say, I'm not going to do it. You couldn't just say, I no longer want to do it. You had to. Now, interestingly, again, one of the other sections of the realities bomber command is some people did say we can't go on. Some people did say I've had too much. Some people did have mental, physical breakdowns. And the Air Force and the military at the time was not good at coping with this. And they were, in actual fact, some of the accounts, they, were, they used the term lack of moral fibre. So basically cowardness. 
So if you had a mental or physical breakdown because of the dangers you'd faced and the things you'd seen, you weren't helped in most cases. You were told you were a coward in the same way that in the First World War, men were put against posts and shot if, they, if they'd lost confidence and couldn't go over the top. And although nobody was shot in Bomber Command, some of them were sent out in disgrace. There was a, a couple of, again, accounts of where the whole of a station is called out uh, and they have to witness this poor RAF uh, officer or sergeant who has had a, a breakdown and he, uh, he is stood in front of them and he has his badges of rank torn off him. He has his medals and they have medals. You know, some of them are carrying gallantry medals from previous operations. They have them torn off them. Poor encourage Zotra to make an example. It was a terrible, brutal, brutal thing to do. But that's the way the military coped then. Clearly, these raids had a huge effect on the, the men who flew in them. But how did it also shape the lives of their families at home? Uh, the families were affected incredibly. Again, you've got to remember that, you know, the 55,000 plus men in Bomber Command who was killed was somebody's brother, father, grandfather. They were all individuals. And each one of them had their own personal story. And one of the people that I spoke to for the book, uh, a lady called Elaine, well, her maiden name was Elaine Shaw. Her dad was a, a Lancaster gunner. And she talks all of her memories about her dad coming home in his uniform and, you know, kind of chatting to her and the letters that she wrote. And I've got a load of those letters that I use sections for in the book when he's talking about, you know, be a good girl and help your mum and make sure you study hard at school. I'll see you soon. I'll be home to see you next week. And the last time she saw him, uh, he'd come home because his own mother wasn't very well. And she walked him to the bus stop when he got back on the, the bus to go back to his base because he was going off on, uh, on an operation. She waved him away and uh, he said, I'll be back next week. And he was going to bring some of his crew friends back and they were going to have a little bit of a, a get together. And so Elaine, I think she would have been 11 then, uh, 10. She was looking forward to seeing her dad coming home, 10-year-old Elaine. Uh, and the next thing that happened was they get a telegram. Elaine is at school. She gets called to the headmistress's office. Ten-year-old girl, terrified, doesn't know what she's done. Uh, her headmistress says, you must run home now. Elaine gets home and her mother is putting the kitchen fire out uh, and packing a bag. And Elaine's little girl doesn't know what's happening. And uh, her mother said to her, your dad's been killed. He's not coming home. And can you imagine that? And she said, we have to move on. And in actual fact, the telegram had said that he was missing in action. And it quickly became apparent that they didn't know if he was alive or dead. And so for the next seven months, they had to carry on. So as though he may be alive or dead, and it wasn't until I think the January six or seven months later that they eventually got a telegram that said, and I've got the telegram in the book that said, I mean, it is, it's just almost in its, in its finality and its brutality, it's almost heartrending. With reference to the letter from this department of the 31st of December, 1943, I'm directed to inform you that action has now been taken to presume for official purposes that your husband, Flight Sergeant S. Shaw, lost his life on the 18th of August, 1943. I am to express the sympathy of the department with you in your loss. That's it. He's gone. That's it. And Elaine said, so there's no funeral. There's no memorial service. There's nothing. There's a telegram that says your husband's missing in action. And then some months later, there's a letter to say your husband is now dead. That's it. Can you imagine that today? There's no means of commemoration. And Elaine actually sums this up quite well. And she said, my dad was one of the 55,000, but he was my one. And can you imagine that being replayed 
tens of thousands of time in households around the UK and around the world. And for me, that one little girl who lost her father speaks volumes for the sacrifice of the men of Bomber Command. And you've already alluded to some of the devastation that these bombing raids caused in Germany. How aware were the crew of, of what was happening on the ground below and how much did it affect them? I think it depended on who you spoke to, at what point of the war it was, that what they'd experienced themselves. So, again, there are a number of stories within the text of crews who are looking down on a burning Cologne or a burning Dresden or a burning Hamburg in horror, thinking, what is going on down there? What are those poor people going through? I've also got a number of accounts in Dresden, in Hamburg and, uh, and Cologne of people on the ground, so German civilians, or indeed, in actual fact, French civilians when we were bombing some of the French towns as part of the advance through France after D-Day. So contemporary accounts from them describing what it was like, and it's horrific, it is brutal, it is heart-rending to hear people talking about bodies melting, the road melting in front of them, to, to watch the skin fall off their hands. It, they, but this is the brutal reality of war. Some of the men said it's what had to be done, that's the way we fought the war then, and in many ways, that's kind of the overall argument that people talk about precision bombing or targeting of industrial cities, but it was the only way Bomber Command had of prosecuting the war at the time. And you can, in hindsight, using the weapon of hindsight that wasn't available then, you can argue about whether some of this was right or wrong. But at the time, it was the only means of taking the war to the heart of Germany. So it was brutal. Some of them certainly had second thoughts. Some of them said, it's absolutely what we had to do. And so there was a, there was a mix of emotions on, on both sides. During the war, and, and certainly afterwards, there has been a lot of criticism levelled at Bomber Command. How did the surviving veterans and those you spoke to, how do they feel about that? I think almost to a man, they feel desperately hurt by it. I think they feel desperately let down that somebody would say, still say 75 years on, that what they did was wrong. As I have said that it was the only way of prosecuting the war. And there have been myths that have grown up. And I think possibly Dresden is one of these greatest myths. Dresden was horrific. And you don't need to exaggerate what, would ha what happened in Dresden to know that it was horrific. But if you just look at some of the myths that have grown up, you just have to go online to see that. that people say Dresden was attacked and it shouldn't have been attacked because the war was nearly over. Well, in February 1945, people did not know that the, the war was nearly over. They know it now. But they didn't know it then. The Germans were still getting V2 rockets in the air, killing thousands of people. They had the Battle of the Bulge that winter where there had been terrible defeats and terrible setbacks. In September the year before, there'd been terrible defeats at Arnhem. The uh, Germans were getting their jet fighters airborne. They were still putting up huge resistance in various parts of Europe. Um, so you did not know that the war was over. And even if you thought it might be over, when you're fighting a total war, you fight the war until the enemy surrenders. And that's the brutal reality of war. And people said Dresden wasn't a legitimate target. Dresden was nominated as a strong point against the advance from the Russians from the east. It was Dresden, The again, I've got a few quotes in the book. Dresden called itself part of the industrial heartland of the German military production machine. It was producing everything from uh, bomb sites for weapon systems to, to engines uh, and to, to other crucial parts of, uh, of the war machine that was still being, Germany was still fighting. So we didn't know the war was over. It was a legitimate target and still it was horrific. And so when you look at it like that, the, the, the men were 
losing their friends. They were losing their great colleagues. The, the losses were incredible. And then when they, in the aftermath of the war, where they're more or less abandoned by Churchill and some other senior people because of the destruction that had been wrought under Churchill's direction, we must understand. Churchill was, you know, part of the the, the group that are directing these attacks. You know, so that was that that was still going on at the time. Um, but they felt abandoned in the aftermath and they felt abandoned all the way through. You know, they didn't get a, a memorial until, what was it, 2013, I think. Um, the, the memorial, the Bomber Command Memorial in Green Park was splashed with paint only 12 months ago. So Arthur Harris's statue is regularly attacked with paint. So they feel hurt. They feel hurt to know that people still question what they did. And then after the war... How did the, the people who'd flown these Lancasters, how did they then adjust back into society? Well, it's an excellent question. And they had adjusted back because their war had finished, which sounds a bit bland. But again, there's two different levels. In one level, everybody in the country had been to war. And so people weren't interested. If you were in Bomber Command, people weren't interested in what you did. If you were in Fighter Command, people weren't interested. If you were on an Arctic convoy, people weren't interested. People had to get back to work to rebuild the country. And there was a sense, especially from some of the men who went back to their factory jobs, to their day jobs, that, you know, the, some of them were literally told, we don't want to hear your war stories. We're not interested in that. We, we simply need to get back to normality. And of course, they were also not a generation that spoke openly about their feelings. And many of them didn't speak quite openly about their feelings for maybe 60, 70 years. Uh, and so they got back. But Many of them did suffer terribly. Many of them suffered what we would now absolutely recognise as really quite traumatic post-traumatic stress disorder. But there was no such thing that wasn't recognised then. And they simply had to get on with their lives. And some of them found it difficult. Most of them got on with their lives. But at the back of their minds, many of them had niggles that they didn't, didn't understand didn't understand why they had feelings of anger or sorrow or on certain days they would feel emotional. All of the classic signs of post-traumatic stress disorder. There's a, a, a wonderful story in the book from Ron Needle, who starts the book, The, the, the Lancaster Rear Gunner, about his search for resolution. Ron lost five of his friends in a, a Lancaster crash. And uh, his story starts the book and ends the book in actual fact, because it's so amazing. Uh, but he suddenly realised that he needed to find out what happened to his men, what happened to his crewmates. And his search for that, his journey of redemption is heartwarming and heartbreaking in actual fact. So it's an incredible story of a search for, for truth. You yourself have a, served in the RAF. What added insights did that give you into the into the story of the Lancaster and the people who flew it than perhaps another historian would get? Um, well, I would never want to big myself up, Rob. <laughs> um, but, you know, yeah, as I served in the Royal Air Force for 16 years. I was uh, a technician and then I became a, a tornado navigator. So I served on tornado GR1s in the first Gulf War, where I was infamously shot down and paraded on TV and lots of your uh, podcast listeners might remember those famous images of myself and my pilot, John Peters, when we were paraded on TV. I then went on to be a nav on Tornado F3s, and I ended up serving in Bosnia on the United Nations uh, no-fly zone patrols there. So I did have an insight. And I think what I had that perhaps other people do not have is a sense of the brotherhood, a sense of the reality of battle and combat and what it means. And I find and found that 
the veterans are more willing to open up to me. So you speak to a veteran about what it was like, and many of them say, well, we just got on with it, or we didn't think about it, and we just had to press on. And what I like to think I can do and did is dig down into their emotions, to move away, to draw back that curtain that they have, that's, that defensive curtain that says, we just got on with it and we didn't think about it. And some of them did, but most of them really, really, really did contemplate the reality of the brutality of that they were dealing out, the brutality that they experienced themselves and the consequences. And so I think that if that's one thing that my military experience did give, it gave me the knowledge of how to ask the questions and it gives them, and this is quite crucial, they recognise in me somebody that will understand that they're not shooting a line. They're not kind of trying to, not trying to exaggerate their own role. In many ways, they, all of them underplay their role. You know, almost every comment towards the end of the book is, well, I didn't really do anything. I didn't really do anything exceptional. I wasn't the one that was brave. Well, of course, in actual fact, they were individually. Each one of them was brave. Each of them, one of them was heroic. Each one of them did make an incredible contribution. And as a force overall, the Lancaster force, they were an incredible force. And so I think that that's what my previous military experience allowed me to bring to the story. That was John Nicholl. Lancaster, The Forging of a Very British Legend, is out now, published by Simon & Schuster. You can also read a version of this interview in the July issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now and also includes articles on the Fields of the Cloth of Gold, the Korean War, Charles Dickens and a whole lot more. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us next tomorrow for another lecture on medieval life.